I walked up a few blocks and then I started crying. (laughs) I broke down then. But the fact that I could keep it together until that moment was literally a feeling of ge'ula. Hello there, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. If you love Human and Holy and want to sponsor an episode of the podcast or support our work in any way, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor or email us at info at humanandholy.com. If you'd like to become a monthly supporter of the podcast, visit patreon.com slash human and holy, where you can give as little as $5 a month to keep human and holy coming back into the world each week. In today's episode, Rachel Flickstein shares her journey to Yiddishkeit and how she eventually felt that she had hit a plateau until she began to learn Hasidus in an entirely new way. Today, Rachel shares what it actually looked like for her to begin to apply Hasidus, and she teaches us a powerful tool gleaned from a Sicha of the Rebbe about how to see the world clearly beyond our personal projections and belief systems. My name is Rachel Flickstein. I'm a shlucha in Wilmington, Delaware. We've been here now for almost 13 years. It'll be this summer, Baruch Hashem. I also opened up a girls' high school this year called Beis Hana High School here in Delaware. And what else can I tell you? I have my family here, Baruch Hashem. I have eight children and Kanai Nahara. They're, they're amazing. My parents actually live close by. I get to be on Shlichas here in my community. It's actually the community that I grew up in with my own shluchim that inspired my family when we were young. And now it's really the biggest privilege that I get to be here on shluchas with them and working with them, building the community together. Nice. Tell us a little bit about your journey to Yiddishkeit. Okay. So growing up, we were always connected to the fact that we were Jewish. I had two brothers, one older, one younger, a few years in between. And it was always something that my parents were very proud of. My mothers volunteered for the synagogue that we were members of and for the JCC and for Federation. And my father also, like we've always been proud Jews. My parents decided from when we were young that they were going to send us to a Jewish day school. My father went to Hebrew school when he was growing up and he would look outside and see all of his friends playing football. And he was stuck indoors for hours multiple times a week because he was Jewish. And so after his bar mitzvah, he was like, that's it. I graduated. (laughs) I want nothing to do with Judaism. It's really annoying. And thought he'd have nothing to do with it ever again. Unfortunately, his father passed away when he was young. And he realized that there's more to life than just football. (laughs) And then also my father had a Jewish roommate and he invited him to come to the same course he was taking in Talmud with Rabbi Gorari from Buffalo. And he really 
got inspired to like reintroduce Judaism to his life. So when him and my mother got married, they made a decision together that we're always going to go to a Jewish day school because he didn't want me and my brothers to have the same experience where our Judaism is restricting us, that we feel held back by it. He wanted us to get all of our studies, their Jewish studies, our secular studies all in one day, and we wouldn't have to have that same resentment that he had. Over the years, we'd go to school and we'd come home and share more things that we'd be learning. So, of course, they knew about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But then we came home and we're like, oh, it's Sukkot. We need a Sukkah. We need a Lulav and Esrug. And instead of them saying, like, no, that's a school thing, they were so amazing. They called up Rabbi Vogel, the Chabad uh, here in Delaware. And they're like, how do we get a Sukkah? Where do we get a Lulav and Esrug from? And as we would learn and bring things home, my parents would really incorporate it. And simultaneous to that is that relationship with Chabad here was always growing. And as we were growing up, we'd come maybe once a month. And there were certain yantibs that we for sure would always come for. And one of them was Simchas Torah. And they had custom every Simchas Torah that we would take on a mitzvah pledge while we were there. So every year I would do one more mitzvah. So it was like night ani in the morning, Shema at night, having a mezuzah on my door, not just on the front door. And as I grew more and more lighting Shabbos candles, I was like, now what do I do? You know, so it became saying my capital of Tehillim or davening a little bit. And each year I was always growing a little bit, a little bit. When I was in fourth grade, two things happened to me that totally changed my life. One of which was that on February 7th, we moved into a brand new home. Now, this home was not just a regular house. This is a home that when I was in kindergarten, my parents brought me to a two-acre field. And they said, one day we're going to live here. So mm. I was five years old. I'm like, I don't get it. Like, what blade of grass is my bedroom? <laughs> Where am I sleeping over here? I didn't know that like houses get built, you know, as a five-year-old. Mm. So over the years, they would take us back, how they dug out the foundation and were slowly building it up and up. I got to choose my paint color, my carpet color, my tiles of my bathroom. Like I had my own room, my own bathroom. So did each of my brothers. It was this gorgeous home with mural paintings and chandeliers, like just stunning, stunning home. And my parents really put everything into this house. This was their dream house that they knew they'd have forever. And it was very special. So February 7th, we moved into this house and I felt so special that I had such a beautiful home. That being said, my parents were never flashy. You wouldn't know that they had this kind of home if they were out of the house. Like They're not into name brands and money and showing off. They're very humble people. But this was just something that was very special to them that they really valued. And the second thing that happened was my little brother was born on May 1st. I had a new baby brother. So now I have three brothers. And I was about nine and a half years older than him. And he became my everything. I'd come home from school and I was with him until time to go to sleep and taking care of him and playing with him. And he was just this fun, adorable, delicious baby that you could just get lost with. He was just amazing. And it really gave me a new sense of purpose in the world to have this little brother. None of my friends had little babies. Like they all had siblings like me, like within a few years of them. So this also made me different and special and unique that my friends would love to come over to see little baby Max. As the years went on, now fast forward to about eighth grade, I celebrated my bus mitzvah. I was the center of attention and everything was amazing. And I remember within a few weeks of my bus mitzvah going to sleep one night, saying the Shema and just opening up and thanking God that he made my life perfect. I was popular in school. I was getting good grades. I was advancing in my dance lessons and classes. I had my little baby brother and my other two brothers were okay too. But my baby brother was like my life, you know. I had this beautiful home. I had great parents. Everyone was healthy. Like everything was good. And I wanted to thank God. Like my life is perfect. And a few months later, maybe like February time, we had an early dismissal 
from school. We had the Friday off and going into the weekend, an extended weekend. I don't know how, but for some reason, my parents let me invite my entire grade over for a party at my house just to enjoy one another's company. I had 72 kids in my class in Philadelphia, and they all traveled to Delaware to my house. And it was not a big deal in terms of housing the party. In this gorgeous home, there was a whole finished basement with a movie theater room, a game room, a family room, a kitchen, an exercise room, a guest room. Like There was tons of space for us to hang out, and everyone was having a great time. And of course, who was the center of attention? was my little brother. So now he's about three and a half years old, almost four. And one of my friends picked him up and spun him around and put him down. And he had this curly hair and he was like, ooh, dizzy, you know? And everyone was laughing and they picked him up again and spun him around and put him down. And again, he was like, you know, dizzy and everyone's laughing. My friend did it a third time. This time when he was put down, he like wasn't getting back to balance. Like something was off. He was going off to his left. He kept sitting down. And he kept saying, busy, busy. He was dizzy. He was trying to say dizzy. And I realized like, okay, I don't know, maybe that was too many times spinning. Like, I don't know what happened. But anyways, I'll bring him up to my mom. And when he's ready, he'll come back down. So I brought him upstairs, told her what happened. And I was like, okay, I'm going back to my friends. Send him back when he's up for it. She didn't send him back down, but I figured maybe he went to sleep, whatever. When the party ended, everyone was going upstairs to leave and getting picked up. And my mom's best friend, Michelle, was there at my house. And I was like, oh, like, what are you doing here? She didn't have kids my age. So she said, well, your mom actually took Max to the hospital. Just make sure everything was okay. I'm sure everything's fine, but she wanted just to make sure. So I just came to be the supervisor, you know, whatever. So I'm sure she'll be back later tonight. Okay. So I went to sleep, woke up the next morning, slept in a little, no school that day, around 930. I come downstairs and my mom's not there. Max isn't there. And now I'm like, they stayed overnight. Like, what's going on? So I called them and my mom said, don't worry. We're on our way home. Dad is with us. We'll tell you everything that's going on, but everything's going to be fine. So that was like immediately a red flag because my dad is a neurosurgeon. And in those days, he was rarely home in the evenings, let alone at 10 a.m. in the morning on a Friday on a work day. I was like, "Mm, why is he coming home? So Michelle also came back and my parents called the three of us older kids into my dad's office. And Michelle went and played with Max. And I remember to this day, like my father had this big mahogany chair and it was facing backwards and he didn't turn around. It felt like an eternity that he was just sitting there. And finally he swiveled his chair around and you could see he had tears coming down his face. And we'd never seen him cry before. And he said, your little brother has a brain tumor. It's right at the back of his head. And we don't know yet you know, what the full prognosis is because the MRI that they took didn't show whether or not there was any tumor cells in the spinal fluid, which would have meant that it could have spread anywhere in the body once it's in the spinal fluid. But they weren't able to see that from the MRI. That's only something we'll know from the actual surgery. So we're like, when is he getting surgery to remove the tumor? And they had scheduled the first available time was Monday. So we didn't know anything from there. We didn't know if it was cancerous, which meant that if it was malignant, it had the potential to grow back. We didn't know if it had spread to the rest, of, like into his spinal fluid, which would mean it could be growing in other places. There were like so many unknowns. And we especially didn't know what this would mean for us as a family, for him, for his life. And this would be, we knew the last weekend that would be quote unquote normal for him for who knows how long. 
So that Friday night, we're sitting around the Shabbos table. And by then, you know, we were always having Shabbos dinners with Kiddush and Shalom Aleichem and Eishas Chayel. And here's my little brother standing on his chair singing at the top of his lungs. I still get emotional thinking about it without a fear in the world. And I'm turning around every five seconds to cry, you know, not knowing what's going to be with him. And we were just trying to make it as normal as possible for him. The next day we went to Shul, we went to Chabad, and Rabbi Vogel shared with us that the entire world is praying for our little brother. Now, in those days, this was before cell phones, this is before Facebook and, you know, international social media platforms. So how would the whole world know about my brother? So he actually had sat by the fax machine and sent my brother's name out to every shliach that he could all around the world with his name sitting for hours, sending to to individual numbers, faxing my brother's name that people should be praying for him, this Travis. And I was like, wow, like if the whole world is praying for my brother, like no way that Hashem can ignore that, you know, (laughs) he's in good hands. And then on Sunday, Rabbi Vogel actually took my father to the aisle for the first time. My father had never met the Rebbe. And this was the first time he was going to the aisle and really pouring out his heart and asking for brachas for him. Come Monday morning, we're in the hospital. Oria Vogel came, the Rebbeton, and was saying to heal him with us. We gave tzedakah, and it was hours of surgery. And basically, after the surgery, we found out two things. Number one was, thank God, the tumor had not spread to the spinal fluid, which was like a huge relief. The second thing was that it was malignant, that it was cancerous, which would mean that he would need to go through radiation, chemotherapy, And then obviously he needed now physical therapy because of where the tumor was. He had now lost his balance. He would need to relearn how to be potty trained, how to walk. Even his speech was a little affected with the radiation. We were going to be doing a different trial to see if it could be more pinpointed and not affect his whole brain and his development. And the chemotherapy, he would be losing his hair. And there was just a long road ahead. And I remember going home you know, around that time saying the Shema again at night. And all of a sudden, I'm like, God, like, I thought my life was perfect. (laughs) And none of those things have changed, but somehow everything is different. Like this one thing brought so many questions. Like how could God do this to an innocent, pure little three-year-old boy who brought so much light and joy to the world? What did he ever do wrong to deserve to be punished like this? And if it wasn't a punishment for him, you know, is this a punishment to my parents who are like the most giving, kind people that literally my dad saves lives every day. My mother would give the shirt off her back to help somebody like such incredible people. Why would they be punished? And if it's not a punishment, then what is this? Like, how could this be happening? And what is the purpose for being here? Like, who am I in the grand scheme of the world? Like a little speck of nothing. Just all these bigger questions started popping up. And as you can imagine, My friends were not necessarily on the same page, still dealing with their social and academics and whatever. And like all of a sudden, like none of that, like, okay, I'm getting good grades, mazel tov. So I started really having these questions. Within that same year, my family went to Israel for the first time. The school that we were in, my brother went in 11th grade for a program in Israel and we went to visit him. So I went with my mother and my other brother went with my father because one of them had to be home with my youngest brother, Max, who was still in recovery at the time. While I was there, I remember... It was Friday afternoon and we're in a cab with my mom and we're getting out of the cab and the cab driver turns around and says, Shabbat Shalom. We looked at each other like, what? Like, did you hear that? (laughs) Like, that was crazy. And then we came into the hotel and they're saying Shabbat Shalom and everyone's wishing. And the stores were like, oh, let's go get something at the store. And like the stores are shutting down. Like even secular people are shutting their stores down. Like, oh my gosh, like 
this is Shabbos. Coming from Delaware, the Vogels were the only ones <laughs> who had Shabbos like this. You know, It was so eye-opening that there's a whole world of Shabbos out there. They don't have to be Chabad or religious to have Shabbos. Every single Jewish person had Shabbos. And I thought, I want to bring something home about Shabbos. So I came home and I decided I'm going to do one more thing to keep Shabbos beyond going to synagogue and having our decided, like, I'm not going to turn my lights on and off. So we went a few more times to Israel. And every time it was like one step closer to Shabbos until I was at the point where I wasn't driving anymore on Shabbos. And I was in 11th grade at that point. And my brother had come home from Israel also. And both of us now were not driving. But I wasn't going to impose that on my family and tell them what they should be doing. I was like, you know, I'm almost out of the house. I'll keep Shabbos. I won't go to Shul, except there's a special occasion. Why could I not go to Shul because we live seven miles away from Shul. So to walk was like a two and a half hour drive through all the back roads. Anyway, so we were like, okay, we'll just not go to Shul unless there's something happening. Until that summer, my father was on his way to go out the door to Shul and he calls Max, who's now about seven or eight years old, in remission, doing really well, still in his physical therapy, but his hair had grown back and he'd gotten through his chemo and his radiation. And my father's like, okay, Max, time to get in the car. We're going to be late for Shul. So my brother turns to him and says, no, I can't come. And he says, what do you mean you can't come? You need your shoes. Come on, we're going to be late. And he said, no, dad, I can't come with you. He says, why? He says, because it's Shabbos and you're not supposed to drive on Shabbos. I mean, hearing those words from his mouth, my father's heart melted (laughs) and he came back in and he told my mother, we have to move. And within a month, they found a house that was a mile away from the shoal here and they moved out of this like dream house. It was years of everything. They poured into it. And just like that, like all of a sudden they realized that life is not about the beautiful home, that the priority is Shabbos. And this has been like a family journey of 20 years plus of just coming closer and closer to our Judaism and our roots and our connection. And Baruch Hashem, they never looked back. It was like, no question that we're here with purpose and there's a reason for everything and there's a meaning to everything. And Baruch Hashem, we have amazing, amazing parents and role models in that. So that was like, you know, I could share more stories, but that's pretty much the way that we found our path to Yiddishkeit and to Hashem and to Tarn Mitzvahs and really recognizing what is our true value, what is true wealth and true luck and appreciating what we have and who we are as Yiddin, as having that connection with Hashem. So it did get to a certain point, though, in my journey that I felt like I was already doing everything I could. And it kind of plateaued, you know, like as a Balchuva, you're so excited you get to do another mitzvah and another mitzvah and there's so much to look forward to. And then I remember reaching a point where I was like, I couldn't physically take on anything else or at least I didn't feel like I could. Like there were only so many hours in a day. I couldn't add another hour of learning. I was already doing my Tehillim. I was already davening. I was already doing, you know, I had a mezuzah and I had Shema and I had my dad, like all the simple ones. It's like, where do I grow from here? You know? Right, right. And I was kind of just on a plateau for a little bit. Maybe I was still a little bit slanted going up, but I just felt like, where do I turn to continue to grow? You know, like Mm. once I'm finished, like growing in what I could do, now what? Yeah, that's so interesting, especially because when you describe your journey, you talk about even the mitzvah pledges in Shul, where you're like every year you were able to take on something new that you had never done before. And it sounds like it was really an evolution and a journey within your family that you took everything on so slowly and over so many years that at a certain point, it's like, okay, so now we're from, now what? Right. Now, <laughs> where's the journey going? Exactly. Exactly. And we do brachas and we do after brachas, but now what, you know? And I guess I didn't really know, like I knew there's more to grow, but I just didn't feel like I had the tools. 
And I started davening to Hashem, please give me tools to know how to handle life. Like as a parent, as a shlucha, as a friend, I just felt like I was starting to become all consumed in things that were happening. And I didn't really know how to manage so well. And even though from the outside, like everything looked perfect and everything was great, you know, but on the inside, it was like, what do I do when my daughter says no? And like, (laughs) I don't like, what do you mean? No, like, yes, (laughs) can't slap her. I was realizing I was missing tools of knowing, well, now what? And it reached like a real front when there was a situation that happened between a friend of mine in the community here where I didn't really know where to set boundaries with her as a Rebbitzin, as a friend. We were very close and just certain things were happening. And I was just feeling more and more sucked in. And like, I was like always a terrible person because I could never give enough. And there was a lot of codependency. And it got to like a front where I was just like, I was so lost and broken inside. And it was consuming me. I couldn't continue on in any of my roles because it was just like, I felt terrible of something that I did that wasn't even, I took space for myself and I felt so guilty about it. And then she was mad at me. It was at that juncture that I called up a woman that a friend of mine had introduced me to, who is now my teacher who's transformed my life. I had met her before. She had come to lecture in our community one time. And I remember hearing an MS and what she was saying and registering her. Like she's somebody that gets it. But I didn't have time to engage with her at the time, like the year before when she had come, but I knew she was the one I needed to speak to. And after speaking with her, I realized like she helped me process what was going on. And I told her this whole story and I was really mad and down and upset and frustrated. I couldn't even hear myself. And I remember leaving that conversation and already feeling transformed. Like I had already grown I could tell you what that tefillah was in that moment, like where my inner growth began. And that inner growth was that I was good. That in that moment when I felt like I was doing everything wrong and nothing was going right and I was so empty and I felt like I had no clarity, it was like, and you're still good in this place. And that sounds so silly and simple. Okay, great. You're good where you are. <laughs> like, but that was such a profound thing Like for someone to tell me like, I was still good, even though I had made all these choices that I was judging myself so badly on. And that was the beginning of now almost a 10-year journey, or maybe eight years actually, of starting to learn Hasidus in a whole different way. A whole different way of not just it being a nice idea or a nice concept, but really applying Hasidus in a way that it's transformative. Like you literally feel your inner being transforming. And that those tools, like literal tools that I was asking for, Hashem again brought into my life through Hasidus, where you literally start transforming our way of understanding the world and our reality. And everything that we think is real and everything that's like makes so much sense is actually not reality. And you start to actually understand what it means, Ein Aid Mavadei. Literally, the only reality is Hashem. And when we can start bringing Hashem into every detail and aspect of our life through applied Hasidus, like it all comes down to the same Nakoda within of where is my growth point today in my connection to Hashem. And I will see that in everything. So like the Baal Shem Tov says, every single experience that we have, every relationship, everything is there as an opportunity for us to see ourselves and where we have the room to grow. 
I didn't understand what that meant. Like, how is it that I'm seeing somebody who's being selfish and now I'm not selfish? <laughs> like, how am I supposed to learn how to grow in my connection to Hashem by seeing a selfish person, you know, or like learning from a thief after learning these skills and tools and learning not just about them, but how they actually apply in a real way. It's literally transformative. And really, every single thing, I could have 20 different situations happening to me. And each one seems so different from my parenting, to my shlichas, to my personal life, to my marriage, to my work in high school. And everything seems so like each one is its own huge story. But then when you break them down, you get down to the exact same point inside of yourself. Like, oh, this is what I'm working on. And you see how that actually dissipates every single situation. <laughs> and that's no longer the reality. Give us an example of where you felt that Chassidus was able to give you a really practical way of seeing the world that dissolved whatever angst you were feeling about an experience. Okay. So first of all, it just taught me also how to understand myself, that emotions are so critical as our guiding light in giving us direction of where we have the opportunity to grow today. So instead of being upset, like, why am I getting so frustrated or why am I annoyed by this? So why am I bothered? It's like, wait a minute, this is my indicator right now that I have a growth point. I have an opportunity here. Let me tap into that, figure out what that emotion is and use that as my new opportunity to connect to Hashem in a deeper way. And that was so, because then we can get down on ourselves. Like, why am I upset? Why am I, <laughs> you know, so that was very empowering in and of itself. So I guess the best way to do this, there's dozens and dozens of tools and each one, if I were just to list them out for you, it would sound so superficial, like being good where you are. Okay, very nice. You tell me I'm good, but how do I actually believe that, right? Or being in my definition and knowing what my boundaries are and having clarity in how I'm defining something, something that sounds so simple, but it has so much depth in our relationships, in our work, in our families, in every single area of our life. But I would say before we can even get to these types of definition, concentration, all these things, I'd say the starting point is a tool that is called sorting and separating. And what this does is it takes a situation and we break that situation down into facts. Why? This is actually from a Sikha and Parshas Nayach, where we realize that what happens when we see a situation is we have so much emotion embedded in that situation that sometimes the emotion itself becomes the reality. Our perception is what's real. Whereas when we go to the facts of the situation, we can actually take a step back from the emotional connection that we have and say, wait a minute, like these are the facts. And it totally diffuses all of that drama and perception that we've put into the facts, the story that we've made out of it. And it says, okay, these are the facts. And now I can hear myself. What am I feeling here? Now, once I've sorted out the facts from the feelings, I actually can go to the next step, which is to separate those two things and say, they actually have nothing to do with each other. A lot of times we can feel trapped because Somebody made me feel something. I got hurt by that person. They frustrated me. I got angry at them. We have other people owning our feelings and our emotions, which is really a very difficult place to be because we can't control that. But if we actually go deeper, that's not true at all. Another person does not own our emotions and has no control whatsoever of ever hurting us. So then why do I feel hurt? <laughs> And this is a new language that Chassidus gives us, that the emotions that we have are completely disconnected from the 
facts that are happening. How could I say that? Well, let me give you an example. A woman is sitting by the poolside reading her book with her headphones on, and all of a sudden she starts feeling splashing. It's like, okay, annoying, whatever, at the pool, but it's part of life. But as she's sitting there, that splashing gets stronger and stronger. Now she's like literally getting drenched by this person in the pool who's splashing her. So either like it's a little kid who doesn't realize, but hello, there's people around, like get away, or it's someone who's intentionally doing it. Whatever it is, it's super frustrating. So she takes off her headphones, puts her book down, turns around to like scream at whoever this is splashing her and inconveniencing her. And the moment she turns around to yell, she sees that this person's actually drowning. In literally instantaneously, what happens to her emotions? They completely transform. Now she wants to jump in and save this person instead of feeling annoyed and frustrated. But if you go to the facts of the situation, did anything change? The fact was she was sitting there getting splashed and the splashing was increasing. None of that changed. The only thing that changed was her perception of what the cause of those facts were. The minute that she realized what her perception was and shifted that, the emotions followed. And that's really the idea of chasidis, chachma binadas. When we start switching our inner perception of things, our understanding from an intellectual place, that's what gives birth to our emotions and our emotions themselves can start to transform, which then goes into our lavush of our thought, speech, and action. So that's the second level of our thoughts and the way we think also becomes affected after our emotions are affected. So our thoughts and our speech and our actions follow from our emotions, which come from those inner sentences. So when we can get down to those inner sentences, we can really start to shift our emotions, which is really becoming that benoni that we all think is so impossible. But we literally have very practical tools. So going back to this lady by the pool, when you just go to the facts, you can start to really have a different perception and understanding of what's going on. Now then, where do our emotions come from? Because obviously, if you're saying something that I find to be hurtful, I didn't feel hurt before you said it. So how could you say that you're not causing my emotion to happen? Well, I have an inner sentence that says something. So when you say that thing to me, it's actually only bringing out something that I already feel within myself. Mm. It's kind of like a mirror, right? Let's say I have a pimple on my face that I don't know that I have. And now I look in the mirror and all of a sudden I see this pimple popped up on my face. Now I would say, well, you, that mirror caused my pimple. I could say that because I didn't know it was there before. But obviously that sounds really silly because it's not that the mirror created my pimple. (laughs) It just showed me where my pimple was and that I have one. But the pimple was there before I looked in the mirror. So the situations, the relationships that we have are all there as our mirrors. And that's why sometimes I'll have a magnifying mirror. (laughs) Sometimes I'll have a distant mirror. I'll have different mirrors, different shapes of mirrors that I can look into. Those are all the circumstances and situations that we have in our lives. But each one is going to reflect back the same pimple of the day. And so when I can get down to what is that pimple, what is that place that I can see myself, then I can actually start to clean the pimple and clear my own face. And then I'm not going to see it in anyone else. You might have had an experience where you went to somebody and said to them, like, I love your hair today. And she might get really annoyed at you. Like, stop making fun of me. I know I'm having a terrible hair day. But the next day you might tell her you love her hair and she'll say, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. How could you do the same thing and her have a different response within two days of each other? Or it might happen to you. Somebody says something, something happens. One day you don't even bat an eye. It doesn't bother you at all. And the next day you're beyond frustrated about it. Like, Mm -hmm. what happened? It was the same thing. So 
that's because we have these inner sentences or inner emotion that we have within ourselves that is there to guide us. And when we can actually figure out what that is, we have room to grow. Now, we need to, though, learn how to talk about our emotions. So this is where the skill of sorting and separating comes in. So first of all, we have to know what is a fact and what is an emotion. So a fact is something that is provable. Everybody agrees on it. It's not something that is up for dispute. So you might say, it's a fact that that person's rude if she comes over and tells me that my shirt is ugly. But that's not a fact. Maybe she was trying to be nice (laughs) to tell you that your shirt was ugly. Maybe this was something like a really good friend of yours and you really love her advice and you could have thought that that was a great thing that she told you, right? So to say that it's rude is really already an interpretation. What are the facts? The fact that everyone can agree upon is that what? That my shirt is ugly? Is that a fact? Well, that's also not a fact because that's also something that she thinks. It's not that my shirt is actually ugly. That's based on opinion. I like my shirt. You don't like my shirt. Okay, no problem. So the fact then becomes, well, she said that my shirt is ugly. That's the only fact that we have. It's not a fact that it is ugly. Even that she thinks that it's ugly is not a fact. Why? Why isn't it a fact that she thinks that it's ugly? Because can you prove what's in someone's head? Have we ever said something that wasn't actually what we really were thinking? And then a second later, I don't know why I said that. I don't even believe that, (laughs) right? Or maybe we'll say something because we're trying to make a point, but actually it's not really what we think, right? Sometimes you don't 100% stay true to what we think and what we say. So even if somebody's saying something, it doesn't even mean that they actually think that thing. So that's huge. Another person's thoughts that we think, oh, they think this about me because they rolled their eyes. That's actually not facts. None of that. That's all perception. When we are able to say, okay, she said that my shirt is ugly, that's the only fact. Now I can ask myself, well, what do I feel? And I can promise you that 90% of the time when we start to say that sentence, well, what do I feel? We're going to say, I feel that she is blah, 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 blah. And the trick here is that a feeling has to be about me. It has to be about ourself. So that means that the feeling has to be something that's self-descriptive. In other words, I'm hurt is not actually a feeling in this definition because hurt is linked to somebody else doing something to me. Or I'm angry. Well, if I'm angry, I'm angry at something or someone. What's behind that anger? What's my real feeling that goes deeper than that? So the emotions that start to be self-descriptive get very vulnerable. I might have an emotion that says that I'm not good enough or that I'm overwhelmed or I don't feel value. I don't feel appreciated. There's so many emotions. These are just a few. But these are all emotions that I have about myself that now can start to be descriptive, that I can start to understand myself. So if I have a sentence that says that I'm not good enough, and she comes and tells me that my shirt is ugly, now I feel hurt because I already had a feeling that I'm not good enough. And she's now brought that to the forefront. But it's not her that caused me to feel that. I anyways feel that. I have to separate those two things entirely. It has nothing to do with her. She's just the circumstance that Hashem brought in. She's my mirror right now. Great. She could say whatever she wants. Who's she talking about anyways? She's telling me her opinion on a shirt. So what? 
Why do I have to care about her and her opinion? <laughs> right? But I could think about myself. Well, wait a minute. If I have a sentence that says, I'm not good enough, that gives me a direction. How do I start to change that sentence? I know that I am good where I am right now in the place that I'm in. I might not be perfect. I might not be where I want to be in life, but can I still be good here? Once I've separated the facts from the emotions, it might be that the facts themselves do need to be dealt with and I have to just figure out how to deal with it. But I'll be able to deal with the facts as facts without the emotion there and I'll get much further than if I was still enwrapped in it and angry or upset and hurt. And once I can understand myself, most of the time the facts then are not necessarily something I even have to worry about because I have the ability to grow within myself. It's the most liberating, empowering experience, but it takes a tremendous amount of time and like guidance even in the beginning to really figure out because we don't even know how to do this. Like we get so enwrapped in our daily lives and feelings that it's very difficult to sometimes do this because like we have expectations and I thought she was going to do something and then and we have all these stories we make up and then it comes down to it. This person was not available. That was the fact. She said she's not available. So now what? Do I have to still be upset that I depended on it? What's my feeling? Where do I have room to grow? And what can I do about the facts now? She's not available. Okay, well, now I can actually look at the situation. Who is available? (laughs) Instead of getting so consumed in her excuses and this and that, it takes out the chaos and creates that direction and clarity. So maybe I'll just share a quick story that happened because... This sounds very nice theoretically, but it won't make sense until we actually apply it in our own lives. That's the thing with applied chassidus. Like you literally need to do the work yourself to really get what we're talking about. Can I ask you before you share the story, I think it would give the story and the concept even more impact if you could share a little bit of context of that sicha in Parshas Nach, where this idea is coming from. What's the context of this idea that the Rebbe shared it in? Absolutely. So it's on Parshas Nayach, where Nayach comes out of the Teva. He drinks from the vineyard, gets drunk, and he passes out in his tent. And what happens from there is his son Cham finds him, and he freaks out. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He goes out, and he puts it in the news, you know? Like, he tells the whole world. It just happened to be just his two brothers were the whole world at the time. (laughs) But, like, you know when something bothers you, and you just want to go tell everyone, can you believe what this happened, like, what this person just did? Like, we just want to share it, right? So he gets so heated about it, and he shares it. And the brothers, what do they do? How do they respond? It says that they take a cover, and they walk backwards, And when they put the blanket down, they turned their heads away so as not to see their father's nakedness. So Rashi asks a question on that. Why does it have to say that they turned their heads away? It already said that they were facing backwards. So isn't that clear the whole time? So he answers it that you might think that when they go to put down the blanket over their father, that they would turn their heads and that they might look at their father. So even as they're putting the tarp down, they're not seeing him. So in the Sikha, the Rebbe asks a further question, then why does it have to add that they didn't see their father's nakedness? Like, that's so obvious. It says two times that they were turned away from him. What is it adding that it says that they didn't see their father's nakedness? What is this bringing out? Cham actually was from, Cham comes from the word heated, right? Like he was emotional. So when he saw his father, he emotionally 
reacted immediately to the situation. He couldn't even deal with the facts because he was so overwhelmed by what was happening. His brothers, on the other hand, were able to deduce what were the facts and separate out. I'm sure they also had emotions seeing that, but they didn't go into the emotional component of it. They just stuck to the facts. And with the facts, they were able to just cover their father. And they weren't judging him. They weren't seeing him exposed. They weren't seeing his nakedness. Whereas Cham, who had something emotional that was related to his father, then he related to that within himself and he couldn't separate those two things. And so the Rebbe talks and goes in detail there how sometimes when we see a person and we want to help that person and we might want to correct what they're doing, we first have to recognize, am I triggered by it? Like, am I annoyed by it? If I'm bothered by it, the work is with me. Mm. But if I just see it for the facts, if I just see it for the other person, I can actually go and help that person. But only after I've separated out my emotions, I'm not upset about that situation. And there's so many powerful ways that the rabbi brings that out of like how you see a tzaddik, that a person can come before a tzaddik and they're not going to see anything wrong with the person before them. Why? Because a tzaddik, it's like looking into a mirror with a clean face. They're not going to see any dirt on their face when they look into the mirror. So that mirror, that other person, there's no dirt on them because there's no dirt in me. But someone who has a dirty face, they're going to see that dirty face show up in every mirror they look in. That's how we're going to see the blemishes in others is Mm. actually a, a sign to me that I have the work with me. And once I've done that work, I can then look into a mirror and see it for its mirror. And I can actually see like, I'm not going to rub the mirror to get the dirt off. I'm going to rub my own face. And then the dirt won't be on the mirror anymore. So- we could mm. do a whole like hour just on breaking that sicha yeah. down, but that's like that's the incredible. gist of it. <laughs> and it goes into halacha and like why the wording is used in certain places direct to say, you know, what the halacha is and using language that's direct versus using only positive language for like kosher and not kosher, those kinds of things when you're talking about facts versus when it's a story. What's the differentiation there? I'm just curious. So when it's a story that's being told and it's not going to affect the factual and direct understanding of it. So you use only positive language because you don't have to say something with that same directness. Whereas Mm. when you're talking about a halacha and you have to know exactly the distinction of the fact and break it down as black and white, so to speak. So then in those cases, you would use the direct language in order to understand what the facts of the halacha are. So most of the time when we're telling each other stories about our lives, we share a lot of the details. Why do we share things with each other? Why do I even want to tell you a story? So I want you to empathize with me. I want you to validate my feelings. But a lot of times do we really feel better when I've been validated and like, yeah, you should be upset. That person was nasty. You're right. And it's like, okay, but I'm still here. Really, I'm telling you that story because I want you to take me out of here. I want you to show me how do I see myself in this story? Where can I grow so that obviously I want you to listen, right? I want you to understand me, but then help me. Don't join me in the well. Help me get out of it. And that's what Hasidus does. And that's what friends are here for, to help see each other and find where are our questions? Where can we grow? What do we want to ask when we go to our mashbia, when we go to our teachers and our rabbanim? We're here to help each other, to grow in our connection to Hashem and not to get sucked into the galas together. So with that context, yeah, I'll share that story. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was really interesting. Sure. So I'm going to share a, a true story that happened. And this happened at the Knesset Shlachis a number of years ago. 
I drove in from Delaware and it was right after a snowstorm. I was so excited. I had a whole plan. I left really early in the morning. I got there like eight in the morning and I was going to get my shades all done and I was going to go register and go to the first session. And I had like a whole plan. So I'm driving in and when I pull up, there was snow everywhere because there was a huge snowstorm. So like feet of snow. And I pulled up and I parked on the right side of the road. So I wasn't next to the curb. I was like towards the outside of the road. And I was like, wow, I found such a perfect spot, like a perfect opening. And there was like a big heap of snow next to it. It's like, I'm not going to have to move my car the whole weekend. And I go off to the kennest register and it was like in Williamsburg, the, the sessions. I'm sitting in the first session at like 1130 and I get a text message from my head shliach in Delaware and it said, go move your car. I'm like, what? Why does Rabbi Vogel know about my car? <laughs> like, okay. I was like, what's going on? He's like, just go move it. I'll explain soon. So to make a long story short, and I could really dramatize this, I got my stuff together. I went back. And in the meantime, I'm trying to figure out how does he know about this? And apparently I didn't realize, but I had actually blocked somebody's driveway when I parked. And this person had proceeded to post it on Facebook with the license plate from Delaware saying a not very nice post that I didn't see, but something about how these shluchas think that they have like Avas Yisrael and here they purposely are blocking us from our life. And they think they own the world. They could just come do whatever they want. Don't they realize there's people in the world and beyond them and all this stuff? So I get back and I feel terrible. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I did this to this person. I feel awful. I'm ready to do whatever it takes to apologize. I didn't even know about this post, but I knew it obviously had really affected their life that they're posting about it and that Rabbi Vogel found out about it and that like the chain. And it took me such a long time even to get back. I'm running to the car. I feel terrible. And when I got there, I immediately started knocking on the two houses that were next to this driveway and nobody was answering. Somebody was walking by random. I'm like, do you know whose driveway this is? She's like, I don't know. And as I was asking him, the car that was right in front of my car pulled away. And that was actually a real spot. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to pull up into that spot. I'm going to pull up into that spot and I'm going to at least have you know, a real parking spot and I can unblock their driveway and I'll try to figure out like who to go to. So I pulled into that spot. And as I'm like turning off my car, a man comes from across the street, starts screaming at me. You don't move. Don't move an inch. I know who you are. And well, I didn't even realize he was talking to me at first. He starts shouting. I get out of the car and I was like, I didn't purposely do this. Like, I don't know what happened. It really wasn't on purpose. I'm so sorry. He's like, you're not sorry. Now you're a liar and you're sorry. And he would not let me apologize. I just kept saying, I'm sorry. I like, it wasn't on purpose. I don't know what happened. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And nothing was appeasing his wrath. And just when I was feeling after 15 minutes of being screamed at, I'm finally getting somewhere. Maybe I should walk away. Now his daughter comes out. And she starts regurgitating all of the same sentiment of her father and even worse. And at a certain point in the middle of it, I was just like, if this was before I had started applying chassidus in my life, what would the scene look like? I would have been a hysterical, bawling mess, <laughs> bowing down to them on the floor by now, like not knowing what to do with myself because I would have just been so broken by them. And in that moment, the fact that I didn't fall apart was only a testament to the inner work that I had done because I realized these people who are screaming at me, let's go to the facts for a minute. I parked my car in front of their driveway. 
And now they're saying all of their opinions about me and not accepting that this was an accident. Those are the facts. That's what they're saying. And who are they actually talking about right now? Are they really talking about me? Is that really who I am? Is that really a fact that I'm this terrible person who doesn't care about other people and all these things that they're saying? Of course not. That's not true at all. If they would know me, like I'm the opposite. I tried to be at least, right? It was a real genuine mistake, but they couldn't see that. They're talking about themselves. And when I could separate out those facts, then I was still very emotional. I was shaking. But I knew I couldn't process it in the moment with them screaming in my face. And I realized that if I don't leave, nothing's going to change. Like they're just going to keep yelling at me. So I got back into my car and I closed the door and the window and they were knocking on my window. What's your name? What's your name? I said, my name is Rachel. This is my phone number. Please tell me how much I owe you. I'll send you whatever compensation I need to for what happened. I sincerely apologize whether you are going to take that or not. And I rolled up my window. They're like, what's your last name? We're going to find you. We know where you're from. We're going to find who you are. And I just sat there and all that I wanted to do was drive home. I was actually staying in the house the whole weekend next door to them. <laughs> I'm like, how am I going to walk by them? I was like, I want to park my car as far away from them as possible. I wanted to disappear into thin air. And then I just said to myself, no, you're shlucha of the rabbi. You came here for the kinnis and you are not going to move your car. You have a great parking spot. You don't have to move it the rest of the kinnis. You're right across the street from where you're staying. And I'm not going to be manipulated. They're talking about themselves. You know that what you did, yes, it was a mistake, but you're still good. And you're going to leave your car here. And that was such a huge step. I literally was ready to drive back to Delaware. I got out of the car with my purse and I just started walking away. And they're screaming behind me. And I just shut that out. And I walked up a few blocks. And then I started crying. (laughs) I broke down then. But the fact that I could keep it together until that moment was literally a feeling of ge'ula that I didn't crumble under them. I still had room to grow. But now I was figuring out, well, what is my feeling? And when I was able to speak it through with my mashpi, I realized my feeling that I had was that I'm not good enough in that moment. Like that was my feeling that I'm not good enough. And whatever they were saying was just showing me that feeling loud and clear, like you made a mistake. Now does that make you a failure? Does that make you a bad person that isn't capable? And once I was able to uncover that feeling and disconnect it from them, it dissipated all of my anger at them. I like didn't care at all that they were screaming in my face. But if I were to tell this story to a friend, they'd be like, I can't believe they did that to you. Don't they know? Ah!" You know, it's just like, no, I feel sad for them that that's their perspective on life, that they could think someone could do this purposely. But I was able to diffuse all of the connection of emotion to them by bringing it to myself. And that was the most liberating feeling in the world. And then I have a place to grow. I have something to work on. The story continues. They posted on Facebook. They found my name and made a terrible message and tagging me and people were commenting on it. And then again, was another opportunity. Like, that is something I don't have control over. Those are circumstances. But am I going to eat myself up and want to control everything because of that? Or where's my point of growth here? And so it kept bringing myself back to my, the work is with me and disconnecting that from them. So this is like a tiny window into an example, because without doing the work, I can't show you how it dissipates that connection with them 
because that's something we have to do within ourselves. And it is hard work because we're so trained to connect our emotions to other people and to have our emotions be as a result of something, that to retrain that thinking takes major meditation and inner work and davening that Hashem helps us to do that. But when we get there, it's literally transformative. And now my Avas Yisrael can be on a whole different level because I'm not getting triggered or angry or annoyed in the moment. I still do sometimes. Don't worry. I'm still growing by Hashem. <laughs> it's going to be forever. <laughs> but definitely eases that. And you get better and better at sorting and separating. It becomes like a muscle. Like you work on it with little things. And as time goes on, it grows and grows. And you can handle the bigger things. And even going back to that initial situation with my community member where it was so toxic, I felt like I had to totally cut her out of my life. And now we actually have a relationship with each other and we're friends. We're not as close as we used to be, but there's no hard feelings between us. It's really geuladik. That's incredible. And like you said, it has to be applied to our own life and our own life experiences for us to see how that process happens, how we go from being so activated, enraged, like Chum, feeling so emotional to being able to just see the facts for what they are and to see where it's giving us an opportunity for growth within ourselves. So we usually end off each episode with advice. I think it would be cool if you could break it down into a couple step process. A situation happens where you start inflating the experience and the story in your mind and injecting all of your feelings and emotions into what it means. And what is the process of detaching yourself a little bit and beginning to see what you are telling yourself about what this story means about who you are? And how that process can then bring you to being able to take ownership over your peace and your reactions and have agency over how you react in life. Right. Sure. So the first step is going to the facts and remembering that a fact is something that's provable. You can't prove what's in someone else's head. You can't prove that they're rude. Anything that's an adjective is no longer a fact. A fact could be she said something, but not how she said it even is already an interpretation. She rolled her eyes at me. No, she rolled her eyes, right? The at me is what I'm perceiving walking in. So it takes time to learn how to really go to the facts. But once we can get to the facts in the situation, the next question then is, what's my feeling? And again, it takes time to figure out that my feeling is with me. It's so hard when I say, how are you feeling? We always talk about other people first or the situation first. I feel like this. I feel like they. <laughs> and to say, I feel within myself and to finish that sentence. That is probably the hardest part. I've sat with people and working through this and it could take half an hour at least for them to like actually be able to say, oh, this is my feeling. This is what I'm feeling right now. And right when you get to that feeling, it's like an aha moment. Like, oh, and everything else diffuses. And you realize how that sentence is actually what created all of that story and perception. And when I can go to that, as simple as like in a relationship, there's so much interpretation that happens with reading body language. And I think that I know what they meant and they said, but so many times we're off. And if we're anyways making up a story of what they're thinking about us, why don't we make up a good story? If I'm saying, well, they might think that I'm a loser or whatever, you know, like, why? That's my sentence that I'm not good enough. They might think that I'm the most amazing person in the world. If I'm making up a story, let's make up a good one, you know? And it's kind of retraining that thought process. Once I get down to what my emotion is, it's really disconnecting the facts from that emotion. 
that fact did not cause that emotion. The mirror didn't cause my pimple. It just showed me that I have it. I really, we daven to Hashem to give us the strength to use this tool. Because just like a secretary, her job is to answer the phone calls in order to do her job. If her phone breaks, her boss is going to give her a new phone because that's her job. Whereas if she just comes and says, can I have a bonus? That's like, eh, maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. These tools of Hasidus become our phone line to do our job in this world. We can't do it anymore without Hasidus. That's why we have Hasidus now. There's no longer the ability to function in this world without moving towards Geula with Hasidus. And so when we daven to Hashem to bring these tools down so that we can actually apply them into our life, He has to give it to us. It's a guarantee. He's giving us our phone line because that's our lifeline now to be able to really connect to Hashem and bring Geula to the world. Powerful. Can you give some examples of what those emotions that get triggered could be? One of them that you gave was, I'm not good enough. What are some other examples of emotions that would be triggered by someone else's behavior towards us? Just like, you know, common examples that you see come up in other people and yourself. Sure. So actually the word triggered becomes a non-emistic word. Like nothing can trigger me anymore, right? It's just my reflection. So anything can trigger any emotion because the emotion is mine. It's not something that could cause me to feel something. So some examples of emotions, like you said, would be, I'm not good enough. Unworthiness is a big one that we feel, I think, as women. Overwhelmed. We can feel that we're unloved, unappreciated. We could feel afraid or down like depressed about something. We can feel confused about something. There's a lot of different emotions that when we get down to speaking about ourself, it brings out like, we know our emotion without me giving you the list. So when I first did this, I didn't get the list. What are your emotions? I had to find the one. I had to just keep talking and saying, is it this? Do I feel like that? No, I don't know. Like it was so hard to put into words. But once I found it, that was what was so liberating. So we don't necessarily need to know what the category of emotions are as much as really listening and going deep. And behind the anger, there's a sentence that's making me angry, that's making me feel annoyed at that person. Why am I annoyed at that person? Because really, I need to be better about my definition or comparing myself to other people, right? Well, that would come from being good where I am. Or like, that's just the one that's on my mind today. Or if I'm feeling overwhelmed, if someone says, okay, I think it's that I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm feeling unloved or I'm feeling unappreciated, where would you go from there? So then once that feeling is separated from another person causing me to feel unloved and that feeling is just within myself, then I can start to move with that emotion. So then that's where other tools will start coming in. How do I feel not overwhelmed? Well, there could be three or four different tools based on where's my overwhelming feeling? Like, what am I talking about when I say that I feel overwhelmed? Am I talking about my to-do list? Do I have to feel productive to feel my value? Or do I have an innate value? And like, it sounds like, oh, duh, of course I have an innate value. But do I practically apply that and feel that in everything that I'm doing? Or do I feel like my house has to look a certain way? My family has to look a certain way. My Shabbos table has to, in order to feel like I really Or that if someone's giving to me, that now I owe them something, like I have to be deserving of being gifted. All these different feelings that are so nuanced that like we don't even allow our our real conscious level to process these sentences because like, of course, I don't feel like that, right? But if we go deep enough, we have these 
subconscious sentences that even feel so silly to bring like, really? Like, I feel that? Like, I feel not good enough? What are you talking about? Of course I know that I'm great and Hashem created me and Hashem gave me. But then it's like, okay, but there's still that sentence somewhere that's holding me up. And then there's tools of how to work through those sentences and start shifting them. And when we shift those sentences, that's like putting on the Rebbe's glasses of perceiving the world for what it is, that this becomes our new reality, our new obvious, because my sentence is no longer, I'm not good enough. My sentence becomes, I'm good where I am. But that's a whole thing to work through. How can you say I'm good where I am? Don't you know what I'm doing? (laughs) Don't you know where I am? Like, I'm not good enough, right? (laughs) So each of these becomes a whole journey of Avaida in different avenues. So I started with sorting and separating, but they branch off into all different ones. Yeah, for sure. I want to really bring it down. So if you could kind of like summarize the work of reframing the way we see ourselves. If someone says, I am not good. Like, do you know what I'm doing? I am not good. And so intellectually, I have an ishama, and so therefore I'm good and whole. What is the bridge between feeling like I am not good and the fact of I am good and I have an ishama and I'm connected to Hashem? So- for me to explain it, it won't be a sentence. But first, we have to deprogram the way that we understand ourselves and all the perceptions that we've gained about ourselves over the years in nuanced ways from our life experiences and go back to that like nikuda of our neshama. And maybe I'm not perfect, but does that mean that I'm not good? First, we have to go into our perception place. And then we can understand how it translates into our emotion and then into our thought, speech, and action. But first, I have to recognize that I even have such a sentence right? right. and allow myself to be aware of myself and get in tune with myself. And there's so much more that to leave with a practical, I would just say is to know that there's a world of growth ahead of us in such a beautiful way. Like to know that it's out there, that the ability to transform ourselves and to become a Benoni that seems so impossible, that seems so far-fetched and like, yeah, like one day I'll be a Benoni. Like actually there's real tangible day-to-day tools that we have that can transform us now. And so even if it can't all be given over in one session of like a real takeaway, take home, even I can give a taste of it, but just to know it's there and to search for that and to look for that until you've found the way to own it for yourself to own chassidus, to recognize the power that it has to transform us from within and our relationship with Hashem from within. I think just being aware of that and aware that we have these inner sentences that we can start to shift is like the first step in actually starting to move to shift them. For sure. I think it's really empowering and hopeful to recognize that we can build an inner resilience and an inner story that is not penetrated by other people and that we could move through life no matter what happens to us or how people treat us in our life experiences and maintain that inner sense of self and understanding of who we are. Yeah. It's like the teva, you know, like we could be in a flood going crazy, but when we go into our teva, we can float above it and doesn't matter what's happening to us. We're not on that roller coaster anymore of just being swept up with whatever's happening to us in that moment. Like, I'm happy because I got a good grade or something good happened to me at work or in my family. I have nachas and then something bad happens and now I'm really down and then back up and down and up and down. It gives us that stability of being able to stay within ourself and constantly growing in understanding ourselves and the relationship that we have with Hashem. 
you get to a place of ge'ula from not being a victim and so trapped by what's happening to us, we start to see how it's really happening for us and how we can use those things as opportunities to grow and to see ourselves and to see Hashem. That really nice. is what brings Hashem into everything. The visual of the teva is excellent. That inner stability, the inner calm, despite what's happening around us. Right. A beautiful visual. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Elokai zakinina Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Chassidus into every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.